Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, this is Roy Green. Thanks for joining us for this podcast of my show. The Toronto Sun's Joe Warmington joins me with a follow-up to something we talked about three weeks ago, interference in free speech in Canada. The growing story of the imprisonment of British right-wing activist Tommy Robinson as we talk to a member of the European Parliament and Alfredo Corchado of the Dallas Morning News on border issues and his new book. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I was talking to my good friend Joe Warmington uh, about three weeks ago, one of the great columnists, great journalists in this country. And, uh, and we got to talking about freedom of expression and freedom of speech and how it's more and more difficult to, or appears to be more and more difficult for us to say what we feel, write what we think, without being constantly checked by those on the left. And Joe's back with me uh, on the show. We're going to talk to him for a few minutes about this. You and I just riffed about that, Joey. I don't know, remember, I really don't remember how it started, but we just started well, a riff, and the response has been unbelievable. Yeah, and I think that's what the underlying theme of this whole election is, even in the clips you just played now, Roy, where you had the premier talking about, well, that's extremists, you know, extremists on both sides, extremist views. That's the premier talking. And, of course, you know, you talk about extremists. I mean, she's the one that brought in the sex ed curriculum. Now, I know what you're thinking. As I said, sex ed curriculum, I mean, if you were like me, when I used to host a show, I'd be like, oh, uh, here in the back of my neck standing up. The audience is thinking the same thing. What's he going to say? And what can he say? And if he says something wrong, they're going to come down on you. And that's just one example. So, you know, uh, the sex ed curriculum, which I think, is extremist and lunacy, really, to think that you're going to teach children at this age. It's not age-appropriate. By saying that, I will be checked immediately, might as well test it, on Twitter and other places, because they'll be calling you homophobic or whatever. And yet, nobody's calling the people that are bringing forward these, these sort of strange ideas any names. They're just saying, hey, listen, let's have a conversation about this. Is this age-appropriate? So I, I use that example just because it's perfect to illustrate the problem that you have if everything that you say, if you're not going to have a conversation, it's the same on the left. I'll just quickly say it with Andrea Horwath and some of her ideas. Um, you know, and talk about particularly in the areas you just mentioned about business and different things like that, people leaving and we're taking taxpayers' money and throwing it at businesses like you just described. You should be able to have a conversation about all of these things. In her case, she talks about that sanctuary province or to have the labor unions never, ever, ever legislated back to work. Well, those are billion-dollar decisions right there. Health care and all, and we're not allowed to say anything. Yeah. Joe, you also, over the last week and a half, two weeks, you've exposed several NDP provincial election candidates for disrespect to veterans and Remembrance Day, the brother of the federal NDP leader, also a provincial candidate, carrying that sign that read F the police, Another NDP candidate describing Toronto's black chief of police as a C and blank, blank, N. Uh, and another with a pro-Hitler Facebook meme. No apology, no firing of oh. candidates by Andrea Horvath. And clearly she doesn't 
She doesn't fear the kind of, or she doesn't, she's not concerned about the kind of response that she may get from the right as people who she's are on the conservative side of the ledger get from the left. She gets a pass on it. She gets and, a pass. You know, my colleague, Sue Ann Levy, who, you know, did 50% of those uh, stories, we worked on these things together. I'll tell you why in a moment, but she was challenging Andrea Horwath in a very, you know, tough way that she doesn't get. Doug Ford gets that. Donald Trump gets that. Stephen Harper got it. They went after Mike Duffy with everything they, you know, could ever think of, and even though that was nothing. So, you know, you start to, so it's nice to see someone like Sue Ann. Like, I couldn't go up and do what Sue Ann does and start, you know, challenging and hollering at Andrea Horwath. But Andrea Horwath flipped it around and said, no, you're the, you're, you're the problem. You're the problem for daring to, to raise these issues. And, you know, I'm sorry, but when you're, when you're saying that people like Roy Green and myself and all the millions of others are brainwashed because we're wearing a poppy and that it's offensive to have, you know, the uh, troops at Leaf game or the Argo game, Ticat game, whatever, um, you know, it's, it's really, really uh, troublesome. And I think that that's one of the great tools that the left brought in. But don't think for a minute that Doug Ford uh, doesn't know all this. So let me ask you a question, and you can be honest about it, since we're doing free speech. Has Doug Ford been on your show at all in this campaign? No. And the reason for that, I suspect, is because not because he doesn't want to come on your show. I mean, are you kidding? Come on the Roy Green show is, is you know, it's a nice invitation to, to receive for anybody. And he certainly came on the show when he wasn't running for premier. The reason why is because he knows that you're liable to get him to say something that will be clipped and moved around, and that will cost him seats. And he doesn't want to be beat. That's why he hardly ever talks to me. I've only talked to him once in the whole campaign. And, uh, you know, that's that's unusual because I talked to him once a week for the last 10 years. And so that's what happens with uh, with free speech. And it only goes one way, as we saw with the Roseanne situation in the U.S. Well, it, well, it does. And uh, and Joe, um, uh, also looking at the story, and I was trying to think of what the issue was. It was an issue that I was thinking about this morning. It was the border. If... And it started a couple of years ago when I started to get criticized for using the word foreigner. That was attacked. I was some sort of bigot and racist and non-inclusive individual because I referred to people who weren't Canadians and were in Canada as foreigners. And Jason Kenney was the immigration minister at the time, and he was on the show, and I mentioned that to him. And first he laughed, and then I I got the sense he got angry uh, because... Clearly, that word applies, but that's how it started. Now, if you challenge the fact that, and we're going to do that in the next hour with Michelle Rempel, uh, if you challenge the fact that the federal government and uh, uh, the uh, immigration minister, Hussein, is given $50 million to Quebec and Manitoba and Ontario, ostensibly to help with all of the expenses of assimilating or taking care of or housing the people who enter the country illegally, if you challenge that, Somehow, you are also going to be considered a racist and a bigot and non-inclusive. Fact is, our borders are there for a reason. And the reason they're there is to provide security to the country. And right now, I believe our security is being compromised by people who have no right to be in Canada entering the country. And it worries me when the prime minister uses words like um, is it irregular instead of illegal and just my saying this over the last minute and a half is going to get me emails saying you're a racist. What word are you supposed to use if they tell you that? 
Uh, no. Like somebody no, comes across the border don't. there in Quebec on that uh, that road there. I can't think of the name of it. But Roxham Road. Roxham Road. Roxham Road. Yeah. yeah. They come across there. What what are you supposed to call them? Well, exactly. Water? And oh, I, okay. You know, Joe, I don't worry about it, uh, but I know that some people do. I don't care if people attack me for what I say because I'm, I'm saying what I really believe. That's my job. I'm if supposed to do that. If we went down to do a show together on Roxham Road, which yeah. we should do. We should. They would try to keep us a mile or two away. Yeah. And that's where their protesters, their Antifa and all those kinds of people are, which they consider, pro, they call them pro-refugee. Look, we're all pro-refugee. If, 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 if you and I could do anything to help somebody, we'll do it. That's not the issue. The issue is do it the right way. Stand in the queue. You know, uh, my wife came from the Philippines, my son, and she has an older son. We've got one of those mixed families and different different things, uh, you know, different nationalities, all that stuff. But I'll tell you one thing we didn't do is cheat the system. Everybody applied the right way. Everybody's doing the right things. And it works. It's, it, it's slow, but it works. But it'd be a lot easier just to sort of jump the queue, take all the money, and uh, you know, go from there. But not everybody's like that. In fact, most of the people that I know through you know, personal connections and also through my professional life are the same way. They, they are very proud of you know, being Canadian or trying to become Canadian. And that is what it's all about. I don't know what Prime Minister Trudeau and the other people are, are up to, but uh, it's not what, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly not above being critic, uh, criticized. No. Joe, uh, freedom of expression is really a fundamental tenet that I'm becoming more and more appreciative of uh, by the day as it becomes more and more attacked by people who seem to have no problem with freedom of expression being limited and somehow feel that the constitutional right to express yourself as you wish, as long as you're not engaging in specifically and clear hate speech, they, they seem to feel that it's okay to be compromised, to have freedom of speech compromised. They have no idea what that will mean to them and their lives and the lives of their kids. They have no concept of well, just really how damaging that will be. I'm very concerned about this, and I'm not going to use the same line I used three weeks ago because, uh, you know, people said, oh, my God, don't say that. And I was talking about, you know, who gets to do shows in the future and things like that. Let's not go there. But what I will say is this, is that November 10th and 11th and around there, myself and my colleague, Michael Peake, now retired, great photographer, we went out onto Young Street. And we went on, you know, and this is a lot of this is because of our good friend Don Cherry had, had sort of pointed it out. And we counted 100 at a time for poppies. And there was many times, 100, no poppies, 100, no poppies. And then it kind of picked up and it became, you know, 11 per 100. And that was pretty well the average. So 11% were wearing a poppy. This is downtown Bay Street, Young Street, all that down there. It's so troublesome that Mayor John Tory bought a box and we went with him and he went and handed them out to people you have to hand them out now you say well and I, i've had a lot of emails like this you know the poppy should be white poppies it glorifies war in the past and the kids do understand it because they get it in the schools but that is free speech because that is the blood right there that ran and you know you remember what that uh the one candidate said about uh letting the uh, poppy bleed out you know, yeah. as if yeah. as if it's a joke that people bled out. I 
I don't know. I look at I, I. I don't care what the PRTC rules are. I want Doug Ford to win this election, and he's not perfect, and he will make mistakes, but he's not a guy that'll run away from the poppy and the veterans and the working people. Uh, the NDP candidates, and I'm not saying Andrea Horwath, even though we did do a story of her on her phone, looking at her phone right in the moment of silence. Uh, that that can happen. I mean, I've done the same thing at times, and so you know that's. I don't think she meant it, but. The NDP candidates are scary as hell, and that's my free speech. All right, Joe. Great talking to you again. It's uh, generated a tremendous amount of response. I'm glad that you agreed to Can follow I have another, up. Uh, just want to say this one yeah. thing. Thank you for having me. I'm at the Bread and Honey Festival in Streetsville, so if anybody's listening you want to say hello, I'm here. But this, I, you know, I talked about this. They canceled the pancake breakfast this year. Yeah. After 100 years of pancake breakfast, no more. I don't know why. And this is on the heels of them canceling the Santa Claus parade. So, you know, I just don't know what to say. I mean, you know, my kids were looking forward to that, and they were looking forward to the Santa Claus parade, too. So there's more free speech for me. Let's let's bring back the pancake breakfast. Yeah, absolutely. And Santa Claus needs the pancakes. It's just it's just incredible. It that, is. It you, is. You know, I don't need to say any more. You know no. exactly what I mean. I do, All Joe. Thank you, my friend. All the best. Joe Warmington from the Toronto Sun, one of the really great journalists in this country. He gets his teeth into a story, and he will not let go. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I can't actually claim to be an expert on Tommy Robinson's life and who he is, but I do know that he was the founder of the English Defense League and now is uh, a, uh, a member of the think tank Quilliam in the UK. He's also a, quote, self-described journalist. At least that's according to news stories that I've read. And uh, in theweek.co.uk, they write that uh, the English Defense League leader, or former English Defense League leader, was sentenced on Friday. Uh, But another active trial prevented media reporting the case until today. I'm not sure what day that was. This is all sort of coming together. Uh, Hundreds descended on Whitehall on Saturday demanding Robinson's release and protesting against what they see as an assault on freedom of speech by an establishment determined to hush up a child grooming epidemic. And uh, from what I understand, Mr. Robinson was live streaming the court appearance of a number of individuals who were either charged or had been convicted already. I think they were charged of uh, being members of a child grooming gang, sex gang, and they were grooming girls as young as 11 for for rape. And uh, this had been going on in the UK for some time in cities like Rotherham and uh, Newcastle. And it appears that the authorities, police and members of parliament and uh, even media knew this was going on and they've been informed about it by victims and they did nothing because they didn't want to be seen as being racist or um, just not fair. So they gave in to political correctness. And uh, these young women, the girls, continue to be sexually assaulted and raped. And the story is that most of the individuals, as I gather, most of the individuals who were charged or convicted are men of Pakistani origin and are Muslim, although there are men in the in the whole episode who are British and who are white and uh, have also been involved in grooming, but I've been reading that that's more on an 
individual basis. This is getting to be very confusing. But let me introduce uh, someone who knows Tommy Robinson. Gerald Batten is a member of the European Parliament for London. He's a member of the UK Independence Party, or UKIP. And Mr. Batten knows Tommy Robinson personally and has been interviewed by him. Mr. Batten, thank you for taking the time. And would you please share what what we need to know about Tommy Robinson and, and where did I where did I fail to understand the situation that presents itself today? Hello, hello. good evening, Roy, and hello to all your your listeners as well. Um, just a slight correction: I'm also the now the leader of the UK Independence Party and have been since mid February. Congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs> Right, where are you? Yeah, you have a fairly uh, fair description uh, of what you gave there. Um, it's difficult to describe Tommy Robinson. He's kind of a force of nature. Um, he's tremendously energetic uh, and uh, motivated. Um, he is uh, also a, uh, very misrepresented and demonised in the British media. Now, he, he isn't squeaky clean. He's done a few things in his life that uh, we can't approve of. Um, but when we come to judge... Uh, this whole thing in retrospect, he would have been found very much to be on the right side of the argument. And he's a terrific campaign, campaigner now as a freelance journalist for in this, um, this issue, which is going to prove to be, I think, the biggest scandal in British national life when it fully comes into the open, which is this kind of industrialized... In fact, grooming is a euphemism. It's about sexual slavery of young girls. Uh, and not by, uh, you know, a few individual paedophiles and perverts, but whole gangs of men, most of which, if you've said, I think the proportion is about 80-odd, 90% Pakistani Muslims up and down the country who are not just doing this for their own gratification, but it's also a business. It's run out of cab firms. It's run out of fast food shops um, as a cover. And it is literally thousands upon thousands of girls who've been corrupted and uh, sold and misused by these people and it has been suppressed by our authorities the and this has now been proved there's a very good book on this whole subject called easy meat uh, by peter mclaughlin um, which describes this and this has gone over over at least the last 30 to 40 years it was covered up by the local authorities the people who had responsibility for these girls because a lot of them were actually in the care of local authorities because they were They'd already had troubled home lives and had been taken into care, many of them, but not all. And it was also covered up by the police. And we know that. And it was ignored and covered up by politicians. In fact, uh, one of our government, ex-government ministers, who himself ended up in prison on corruption charges, said that they didn't want to do anything about this because it would have upset the multicultural boat. So they've all been complicit and guilty in this. And it's taken Tommy Robinson as a, as a campaigner to actually bring this issue into the fore. So so without Tommy Robinson, if I understand this correctly, without Tommy Robinson doing what he did, the light would not be shining on the issue of and the people involved in, engaged in, the uh, the rape gangs. Well, it would have been much less so because, you know, like a lot of issues, it actually needs a personality to bring it out into the full glare, even though there's lots of people out there trying to do something about it. But it takes, you know, like so much in history comes down to personality, and Tony's certainly got a personality. Uh, and he is the person that has brought this to focus. He's somebody who can get people out on the street to demonstrate in large numbers. Um, he isn't part of the establishment, uh, very much not so. In fact, the establishment want to lock him up, 
and silence him, which is what they've succeeded in doing uh, on the 25th of May last. I mean, would, would you like me to say a bit about that? Yes, please. Right, well, what he, what he, in fact, uh, the judge was probably within his rights because Tommy had technically breached his uh, contempt of court order because if you go back to 2017 in May, he did film on the premises of a court and he did talk about uh, defendants in the case in a way he shouldn't have done and he was given a three-month suspended sentence for 18 months uh, by the judge in that case. Um, last week, well, on the, the, um, on the 25th, outside Leeds Crown Court, he was actually filming in the street. He wasn't on court premises. He only referred to the defendants as alleged criminals, and he was reading out details which were already available in the public domain on the BBC website, for example, which was the names of the accused. And the tri trial was coming to its end. Um, he was live-streaming from the street. The police arrested him, took him into the court. The judge decided that he had offended against his previous contempt of court suspended sentence. Although, having read through that judgment myself, it says that there were no conditions attached to a suspension except a further contempt of court of a similar kind. Well, he wasn't doing something of a similar kind because he was only doing what a lot of the mainstream media do outside court cases. We've had many high-profile cases where, for example, I don't know whether your listeners will be familiar, we had a, a, a man who'd been in the public eye for decades, um, Rolf Harris, who was an entertainer. Yes. In his, I think he was in his 70s, was convicted of paedophile activity. Yeah. The, 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 MS, the, the mainstream media were in swarms outside of that case, um, no, no, not just on the last day when the verdict was pronounced, but prior to that. And they do that in many cases. So Tommy wasn't really doing anything that the mainstream media don't do, except he was there doing it on his own, because they only report on these cases when the verdicts has come in. You'll see a brief bit on the television news. You'll see newspaper reports, and then the whole thing is forgotten until the next case comes up. And there are many of these cases up and down the country. There have been uh, at least in about 38 to 40 different areas of the country, different Mr. local authorities. We've had these uh, gangs arrested and uh, convicted, and that is way behind the numbers that they should have been done over the last uh, few decades. Were other media in, in attendance at the time Mr. Robinson was live-streaming on, uh, on, online at the time? Were they also uh, filming or describing these individuals as they appeared for court? Not, not that I'm aware. Certainly in the brief snippet that I saw where he was being arrested, there didn't appear to be anybody else outside the court. Okay. Now, what uh, I find no. particularly interesting and, and somewhat disturbing is that somebody can be arrested, charged, tried, convicted, and imprisoned in five hours. Ah, well, you see, he wasn't. Uh, he was arrested on a suspected breach of the peace, which means that they were frightened, and under the law, if somebody thinks, if a police officer thinks there may be a potential breach of the peace, mm -hmm. then he can arrest you uh, because of something you're doing. Now, that's what they arrested him on. That's what the officer says in the video. But the reason that he was able to be sent to prison within a few hours because he was on a suspended sentence, and the judge decided that he'd breached the terms of that suspended sentence I see. because of what he did outside the court I see. in May 2017, and he was convicted of contempt of court at that trial, and the judge gave him a three-month suspended sentence. What the judge appears to have done here is said that he had broken the terms of his suspended sentence and given him another 10 months on top of the three months to make it uh, 13 months in total. 
All right. So, but as I said, when I read through the original judgment, it said only if he was did something of a similar contempt to the, 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 the first one he did. He wasn't on court premises. He didn't say that they were guilty. He was reading out information about them that was in the public domain. He had spoken to a couple of them as they went into the court and asked them what they thought and what they thought the verdict would be, which, of course, is something that the mainstream media does uh, all the time to defendants going into the court, even mm -hmm. though if the defendant were to answer or if a witness were to answer, they could find themselves in contempt of court because you're not supposed to talk about the case outside of the court. Right. Well, and, and but you're right. They shout out questions on a regular basis, and the individual just continues That's to have a question. Talk I mean, to us. Done to me when I was a witness in a fraud case oh. uh, where I was the victim, I came out of the court, and the media were there waiting for me for to photograph me, asking me for a comment. And I said, you know, I can't give you a comment because I'd be in trouble with the judge, and it would mm -hmm. prejudice the case. Mm -hmm. Talk to me after the conviction. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Gerald Batten is with me, member of the European Parliament for London. He's the leader of the of UKIP, the UK Independence Party. And we're talking about Tommy Robinson. Now, as far as the individuals who are concerned and the groups, uh, um, uh, Mr. Batten, the groups who, who engage in, engaged in and engage in the sexual assaults, the selling of, of girls and young women, the rape gangs, as far as they're concerned, how many arrests have there been? How many convictions have there been? And did victims actually go to the police and report what was happening to them? Right. Um, I haven't got an accurate figure on the number of um, uh, cases that there have been, but there have been dozens of cases up and down the country uh, and uh, dozens of convictions. And, but these only represent uh, a tip of an iceberg for the actual uh, issue itself and, and the, the amount that this is going on. The victims themselves were very often vulnerable children anyway because, as I said to you earlier, they've been taken into the care of the local authorities. They were in children's homes. Um, they were, the grooming aspect comes in because the young men, the way that this works is young men accost them at school or in the street. They, they show an interest in them. They buy them presents. They get friendly with them. They take them out. Uh, and then they ply them with drugs. This is a common uh, aspect of it. Then they, they have sex with the original uh, Romeo, as it were, uh, and after that he's introduced to their friends and then they're gang raped and then they're put out uh, to have sex when they're, pay they're taken to places where people come in and pay to have sex with them. Uh, and it is done on an industrialised scale. I've actually met some of the uh, mothers of the victims, for example, um, and it's not just vulnerable girls in care. This is done to ordinary girls on their way to school. What's happened is, uh, in many of these cases, is that when people have complained to the police, the police take the view that these girls are just prostitutes and therefore they're not going to bother about them, even though they may only be 12, 13, 14 years of age. And this has been uh, attested to. And indeed, senior police officers have complained about this, that the case, nothing happens, uh, the police don't pursue these cases. And this is what's happened for a long time. But now the police have started to act, and these cases, and many of these cases are coming to court, uh, like the one that we're talking about here, mm -hmm. uh, in which uh, Tommy Robinson was involved. Uh, and uh, there are many convictions that have uh, taken place. Now there's concern. Yes, and it's increasing, but it still only is attacking the tip of an iceberg in what is a very mm -hmm. big problem. There's fear that Tommy Robinson may be murdered in prison. Yes, that was the. He was. Uh, he tells us his own story in his book, and he's done a video on this, whereby he was nearly murdered in prison uh, on a previous occasion when he was put inside. And uh, in fact, a colleague of mine, 
Malcolm Lord Pearson, a member of the House of Lords for UKIP, actually intervened with the Home Office and got him moved because Muslim gangs now have sway, hold sway in British prisons. There is a phenomenon in British prisons now called taking the mat, whereby non-Muslim prisoners convert in order to, for protection, and they, that, that's the way that they survive inside prison. I've known, met people who've been in prison who've told me about this and how it works. And if uh, Tommy is in a prison with, on a general wing where these people are, then, uh, then his life will be in danger. What my colleague Lord Pearson has done after Tommy's... Because uh, we don't actually know where he is at the moment. He was in Hull Prison. Um, I was um, looking forward to be actually going to try and uh, visit him with Lord Pearson. But he's now been moved, but we don't know where. Still can't find out where. And what Lord Pearson has said is that if any harm comes to him, if he's murdered or if he's injured, then he will take out a private prosecution against the Home Secretary uh, for being accessory or negligent in his duty. So he's trying to do that in order to focus um, some publicity on this. But this case isn't really in the mainstream media. There have been demonstrations. I was, I was at one in Downing Street uh, Saturday before last where an awful lot of people turned out, and we had some speeches at the end of that. Uh, and there was another one last uh, Saturday, which I did, wasn't at. Yesterday, I should say. Um, and these are going on, but they're not being reported in the mainstream media, and no attention has been focused on the case at all. Uh, in, our, in our TV and newspapers. Right. Uh, well, I I do thank you for joining. Th- Mr. Batten, I do thank you for joining us. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I do thank you for joining us. And quite a few of my listeners contacted me and asked me if I do a story on uh, Mr. Robinson. I said, of course I will, given what I know about it. And I'm glad I've 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 had the chance to speak with you. Thank you so much for the time. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye bye. Uh, Gerald Batten is the leader of UKIP, the United. Kingdom Independence Party. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Alfredo Corchado. First time I spoke with Alfredo was probably, I don't know, maybe eight years ago, nine years ago. He's a correspondent for the Dallas Morning News. And the stories that you shared with me, Alfredo, were absolutely blood-chilling about the uh, your coverage, your reporting on the Mexican drug cartels and the Threats to your life, including a phone call warning you that somebody was going to die, a reporter was going to die in the next 24 hours, and that was probably going to be you. Good to talk to you again. Great to be with you again, Roy. That was a while ago, and uh, unfortunately, the uh, uh, the violence continues in Mexico. They just had one of the worst, if not the worst year, that's uh, 2017, and now the year has started is uh, even worse than the previous year. So things have not gotten any better since, since we first spoke. And, and we're talking about more than 100,000 people who have lost their lives due to that violence. Well, it depends on the, on, on the stats that you're looking at. Uh, since 2006, when the drug war officially started, uh, the number now is more closer to 200,000 people. Wow. Wow. Uh, I, w- I want to talk to you about your book, but if I could, uh, there's one story that I remember, and I, I think you told me, about sitting in a restaurant and somebody sent a drink to your table? Was that you? Yes. This was in uh, Laredo, Texas, which is on the U.S. side of the border, and which makes the story even more chilling. Uh, we were covering the set at the time, the paramilitary group right on the U.S.-Mexico border, and they were obviously ravaging the whole area. I was reporting on them, trying to follow the money, trying to follow who the leaders were and sitting at a at a place and then uh they just sent over a tequila 
and said these are, you know, courtesy of these men who were there uh, to try to kidnap us. Or I was with another, with two other journalists. Uh, but the message was clear. You know, we, we're not we're not happy with what you're doing, what you're probing, the questions you're asking. And 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 when they say force when they do some, happened. I'm sorry. I said fortunately uh, they they didn't kidnap, but the message was very clear. The message was clear. And when these people don't joke around, do they? No, they don't joke around. I mean, any I think any time you have a, a crackdown on the border, um, whether it's immigration or or drugs, uh, it it really bolsters the, the drug cartels. I mean, they become that much more powerful. Not just drug cartels, but really organized crime. I, I've heard that the drug cartels, if you were to take them as one unit, if you were to put them all together as one unit, they would be capable of, or maybe even the way it's structured now, capable of challenging the federal government of Mexico. Is that true? That is true. I mean, that's been the long-standing. I guess conviction from a lot of people that uh, they've grown so big, so powerful, uh, and, and more than anything, it's because of the level of corruption, the impunity. I mean, ninety-five, ninety-six percent of all crimes are never really punished. So you have this vast corruption within the government. Sometimes people say it's really the government that's behind the cartels, and vice versa. Now, something has happened. Uh, I mean, I think one of the reasons why we're also seeing a lot more violence and new violence is that the cartels have been splintered. So you have, where in the past you had maybe six, eight major organizations, now you have as many as 400 smaller criminal groups, uh, and that creates much more chaos in throughout parts of, of Mexico. They say that's normal. I mean, that's something that we saw in Colombia, uh, and that uh, long term, hopefully, things will get better. But for now, uh, as I said, I mean, the violence has been has been worse than, than, than what, what I saw when I was in the, in the heart of it, covering that. So how cheap is life on the border? Uh, well, it depends. I mean, if you're on the Mexican side, it's, it's, it's pretty cheap. I mean, uh, one of the most startling statistics that I've seen is that the majority, the vast majority of people kill are under the age of 30. I mean, we're talking about you know, many, many young people. And then you also have the whole issue of the number of people disappear. That's a number that we really don't even know how, you know, someday there'll be, and, and even now, I mean, you have human rights activists groups looking throughout the country for, for grave sites of, of the disappear. Uh, on the U.S. side, it's, uh, it's, it's still, I think, some of the most safest regions, ironically, are on the U.S. side of the border. Really, and where would that be? Would that be Arizona, uh, Texas? That would be just you know just about any any border community. You pick them. You go to Laredo, Texas, one of the safest, and then across the border is Nuevo Laredo. This continues to be uh, one of the most dangerous. The same thing with Ciudad Juarez, the Mexican side, El Paso, one of the safest on the U.S. side. What about this this whole wall issue, Alfredo? How do you um, how, how do you assess? President Trump's declaration that there is going to be a great, big, beautiful wall and Mexico is going to pay for it? Well, Mexico has made it very clear they're not going to pay for it. Um, the government from day one has been clear on that. Maybe not as clear as it should have been from the beginning, uh, but it, lately, they, you know, they, anytime there's a wall, anytime President Trump comes out with that, they you know, we're not paying for it. I, I think, you know, as a border resident, uh, it's obviously troubling, 
but also as a water wrestler, you kind of get used to becoming the piñata, if you will. I mean, it, if it helps a U.S. politician, uh, you know, help their poll numbers go up, you you scapegoat the border, you scapegoat the immigrants. And that's something that I try to get into this new book, Homeland, mm-hmm. is, is how you become a punching bag uh, for, for the government. So what President Trump is doing, it's, it's not surprising, but I think he's taking it to a, a, a new level. And it's it's a reflection of the fear uh, among a lot of Americans that they've lost their country, when in reality immigrants have been very, very key in contributing to to the rise to making America a great country, which, you know, I think uh, there's a lot of immigrants today who kind of feel like, where is the gratitude? Where is the, uh, the sense that we're all in this together, that this is a country of immigrants? You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Alfredo Cortado is the recipient of a very prestigious award for courage in journalism. I just want to read a little more about his book, Homelands, and then we'll talk to him about it. Uh, Four Friends, Two Countries, and the Fate of the Great Mexican-American Migration. Quote, this personal moving tale illuminates the very heart of the polarizing immigration debate that is Roiling America Today. That's by David Axelrod, director of the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, former senior advisor, to Barack Obama, author and CNN senior political commentator. In Alfredo Curchado's Midnight in Mexico, he focused on the Mexican drug war and provided a unique binational perspective on the two countries he calls home, wrote the San Francisco Chronicle. It was praised as electrifying, the Washington Post, riveting by the San Francisco Chronicle, and a raw, compelling read by the Miami Herald. Now, with the same vantage point, Corchado tackles one of the most, one of modern America's most profound transformations, the time during which Mexican-Americans swelled to become our largest single minority, changing the color, economy, and culture of America itself. In homelands, four friends, two countries, and the fate of the great Mexican-American Migration. So, Alfredo, four friends you met in uh, in that restaurant in 1987, and you started the story. And David uh, developed his own brand of tequila. Uh, your friend Ken ran for the mayor's job in Philadelphia, and is a successful lawyer. And Primo is still fighting for human rights causes. And you have this incredible story of your own of living on the border and experiencing the, the life and the violence and the reality of the drug cartels. So how does this all come together? Talk to us about how you put this book together, because it must have been a labor of love and a labor of discovery. It was. Uh, it, it was the, you know, I always wanted to somehow find a way to pay homage to the millions of, of immigrants uh, people I grew up with. I mean, I left Mexico when I was at the age of six, grew up in California in the San Joaquin Valley. And so you have this uh, front row seat to the biggest immigration shift in modern U.S. history, um, you know, where millions of immigrants from all the world, but particularly from, from Mexico, sort of come in and, and reshape parts of the U.S. Um, I was in Philadelphia, had just arrived working at, at a job with the Wall Street Journal, and I was incredibly homesick. Uh, I met Primitivo, and I thought this this is the only Mexican I will ever find in Philadelphia. And so we, you know, we, we sort of uh, were very, very, I guess, uh, 
very guarded of one another. You know, uh, we hear that there's a restaurant called Tequila's, and we thought maybe it's a part of a chain, but what the heck? You know, what did we have to lose? And on that same wintry night, uh, come together and meet two other people. And it's a book about friendship. Uh, you know, you, you have a friendship for 30 years, and what has happened to the United States in those 30 years? So you try to put that together. In many ways, uh, three of us, or even the four of us, uh, have led binational lives. We're increasingly because of, of policies like uh, NAFTA, you have uh, economic integration. So it leads you to live lives on both sides of the border. So I, I, I try to delve into what it is today. You know, there's, there's this whole theory of the melting pot, but it's really about diversity and, and people feeling comfortable uh, with their diverse backgrounds to celebrate, the, you know, the home they left and the home they now call home, uh, homeland uh, at a very difficult time today. I mean, this is not... Uh, this is not, not, not 1987. It's a, it's a very different reality, you say, that, as you well know. Well, we do, because in this country we have a situation where our border is now a topic of great discussion because it's being, uh, it's being I, I guess the word is not respected properly, or at least the law isn't being applied appropriately, because people are entering Canada um, illegally, and the government isn't really doing anything about it where people, we've said before, or I've said, people who really require Canada's assistance uh, are living in countries they can't get out of. And so we could be providing them with transport here for people who really need it and bring them to Canada and, and, and provide them with a hand up and create that kind of reality, which, is, which seems to me uh, immigrants are quite capable of Give them a little hand up and they'll create their own world, their own reality. The, the question then becomes national loyalty. Is there a divided loyalty that's developing in the United States? Is it divided based on race? Is it divided based on language, on religion? Or are we just misinterpreting when we look at the United States? I think that question has been raised for generations. I mean, I think it's a question that I'm sure a lot of Germans heard, of the Irish heard, the Italians heard, you know, divided loyalties. And in the end, you just... As an immigrant, you want to contribute to this country, and I know my parents, I know uh, my friends, myself. I mean, we we've uh, we love this country, we love the United States, and 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 try to do whatever we can to to make it a better place. I, I think there is a sense in 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 parts of the country that the, the nation they knew is being lost, and I think that's really what the wall represents. You know, it's a way of saying we don't want you anymore. We want to protect what who we were, what we were. But I think that, that there is a lot of um, uh, maybe not, I don't want to say miscommunication. There's just uh, a, a lot of fear. And, it's, you know, these are the, these are the same people who, who will embrace your, your, uh, your food, your cuisine, uh, your traditions, who you are, but not really who you, who you are as a person. I mean, there's that dis- disconnect. And, uh, and I'm, hope- I ho- I'm hopeful that a book like Homelands can contribute to the education of, uh, of who, re- re- who really are the people and, and, and what we are as a country. Can you share with us a moment in the book that really exemplifies that, you and your three friends, uh, something that, a story that just tells that story? You know, towards the end of the book, we right after the uh, 2016 election, 
there was a sense of uh, this is not the United States that we thought we lived in. And there was a sense of, is it too late to go back to Mexico? Um, David uh, ended up getting his own apartment in Guadalajara. I mean, he was running his business, but he thought, you know what, uh, I, I, need a, I need a plan B. As a, as a Mexico correspondent, I, uh, I was now teaching at ASU, at Arizona State University, and I thought, well, maybe I, maybe I also want to go to back, back to Mexico and maybe live in my apartment and become a correspondent. I did uh, go back to reporting. I still have my apartment in Mexico City. But then you realize that at this, at this symbolically, at this restaurant, Tequila, we had already built our own, our own little Mexico, a Mexico that it had been embraced by America. And so you realize, you know, like these migratory birds, you can't really pick one over the other. I mean, you belong to both sides of the border. Home is on both sides. Well said. Uh, your story is really remarkable. Really remarkable. Your personal story, your personal experience, and I haven't read it yet, but I'm looking forward to reading Homelands, Four Friends, Two Countries, and The Fate of the Great Mexican-American Migration. Uh, I hope you stay safe. I, I know you're still keeping a close eye on what's going on on the border, and I would imagine uh, you won't have filed your last story on on what's going on as far as those realities are concerned. Alfredo, thank you. I hope this to talk is, uh, to you again. I was going to say, Roy, it's been a difficult year for journalists in Mexico. I mean, we, we've had six journalists killed this year, but thank you for, uh, for your good wishes. Uh, the book uh, is launched tomorrow, and it will also be available in Canada, and I do hope to uh, get to Canada soon. All right. Thank well, you so much. Yeah, we'll talk again. There's Alfredo Corchado, and his book is Homelands. And he's had his life threatened on a number of occasions by um, drug cartels because of the coverage he was providing. The Roy Green Show podcast is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you like what you hear, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a review and tell a friend.